Welcome to the Propaganda Report. This is Monica Perez with my co-host Brad Binkley and a very special guest who will for sure be talking about things that are absolutely top of mind for everyone right now. Um, this is Wayne Rohde. He, Hey, Wayne, how are you doing? I'm doing fine today. I'm just wonderful. How are you guys I, doing? I'm super great. Like even I try to keep my chin up. Binkley, how are you doing? I'm feeling good. Better than I have been the past couple of weeks. So that's good. Yeah, these things come and go, but we're all on the upswing, I think. And you, Wayne, have were way ahead of of the topic of the hour of I, I don't know how if you saw this coming or what, but I would like you. I'm not sure our listeners know what you're doing, but if you could give us your backstory and tell us what you're doing right now and kind of how you got from there to here. OK, well, uh, I'm the author of two books. One's called The Vaccine um, court, which is the dark truth of America's vaccine injury compensation program. And the second book, which I just released back in at the end of June, the vaccine court 2.0, which is an updated revised of the national vaccine injury compensation program, but also the countermeasures injury compensation program. And then I also host a podcast called right on point, which is kind of a candid discussion of your civil liberties and your legal matters surrounding the COVID epidemic, uh, the PREP Act, and then also the compensation programs. And I've had numerous guests on. We're like 50 weeks into it now. But that's that is what right I'm doing. on point. <laughs> yes. And that's where we start. That's where we are right now. But it's kind of interesting is how did we get there? And it, it, I have twin boys. Uh, they're 23. They're going to be 24 in October. And my wife and I, we were living in Plano, Texas, outside of Dallas at the time. And, and they were born a little bit premature, but that was fine. And they stayed in the uh, NICU for a few weeks. We came home and they progressed. They were at their developmental milestones at six months. And then at 12 months, they had a little bit of cold. Nick had a little bit of a cold. So we decided not to go back in until the 13th month for their well baby checkup. And at that time, uh, Nick received the, the MMR vaccine and along with his brother, Austin. Nick had a severe reaction to it. It was an anaphylactic reaction, like an allergic reaction where he screamed. This was his first vaccine. He never received any in the hospital. Um, he screamed and it was constant for about two to three weeks where we had to fight um, high temperatures, diarrhea, constipation, vomiting, and, and crying and screaming. And his brother was just fine. And we didn't really know what was going on. And, and our, we were constantly talking to our pediatrician every day, twice, three times a day. We we're brand new parents at the time. And we had tons and tons of notes. And then everything kind of calmed down after two to three weeks for a little bit. But it wasn't until about the 18th month that we started noticing that Nick started changing a little bit. And that is, is that he started losing a little bit of his speech and his ability to socialize and play directly with his brother, like he was doing before. And by 24 months, Nick lost all of his speech. So he regressed and became nonverbal. And that's where he is today. He is a nonverbal child. He's dependent on us for care. Uh, 
he can play by himself, socialize, play on his iPad, play movies, go outside in the backyard, play on uh, on the big tra- trampoline. That's his world. Um, Were they? Are these? Bo- are your boys fraternal twins? They're not identical. That's correct. They're fraternal right. twins. And they were actually born ten days apart. Whoa! No way. Yeah, and I've never uh, heard of that. Well, it was new to us, but it was also new to the doctor, the the OBGYN doctor. And he said, wait a minute, Nick doesn't want to be born. So the best place for for an unborn child is actually in their mother. So he stayed there for 10 days and then decided to be born. Did he have his own? Why we were it's crazy. It's did it's he have not, his own amniotic sac? Oh yeah. Sometimes oh, yeah. Wow, that is crazy. Yeah, and they can only be done. This can only be done vaginally. If you do C-section, C-section, you have to take all the kids at one time because of threat of infection afterwards. So, but there was never any problem with him. You don't think that unusual birth circumstance could have led to him having? Actually, he would have been the one who cooked a little bit longer, so he might have been the one who was would have turned out better. Actually, maybe that's correct. He actually gained a pound and grew an inch in those ten days. Um, and while we were there in the hospital, there was another mother there from uh, the uh, uh, Dallas Fort Worth area that had triplets. And then she did the same thing, one baby, and then a week later, another one, and then a week later, and the third one. And I, I will say, I actually had a baby at 19 years ago in Dallas who had Down syndrome. And what happened, it was my first child. What happened was the water broke, but he didn't want to come out either. Or the doctor didn't want him to come out because it was early. Right. And I stayed in the hospital for two weeks and he stayed inside. And you just have to stay level. So the fluid continues. And mm-hmm. he is absolutely without question, the most high functioning child with Down syndrome anyone's ever met. So there it seems like he benefited from that when he came out he didn't need any oxygen he didn't need anything it was it could nurse and it, he was really really healthy so i can attest to that that yeah. um prolonged incubation as it were uh works for us well it works uh, and it's actually a more common practice now that the doctor that delivered our our children is still down there in plano delivering and he does this more on a more frequent basis because they believe unless the baby, if it's 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 when they're premature, you know, if uh, 28 weeks, 29 weeks. Yes, let's try to keep them inside their mother as long as possible. But if it's at 35, 36 weeks, then they're going to induce labor and, 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 and the child will be born. Um, so that's where we were. You know, we had the children and and but then Nick had that reaction. And it was 24 months at about 24 months was when he lost his speech. Our pediatrician at the time said, oh, don't worry about this. Einstein didn't speak until he was age of four and a half, almost five. And you got to be kidding me. I mean, we didn't know at the time. So, OK, so we're we're. We're, we're kind of accepting it, but we said, wait a minute, we started thinking about it. Um, and it was at three years that we knew we had an issue with Nick. And my wife was saying, I hope this is not the A word. And we got a, uh, an appointment with an uh, uh, I guess it's a neuropsychologist, a Columbia-trained uh, 
um, psychologist, and she diagnosed Nick um, at the age of almost four years with autism, severe regressive autism. So he wasn't born with it. He regressed into it. Now, this is what medical community and the media won't let you talk about because they say, no, this doesn't happen. It's, you know, you're, you're born with it, but it's, it's kind of a coincidence that he lost his voice. That's, that's just garbage because it's not there. Um, and when she diagnosed it, she says, I'm sorry, there's really not much we can do for him. And she Xeroxed two pages out of a textbook that she got from Columbia University 15 years prior and wrote us a prescription for Ritalin and said, this is what you got to do. And I said, you got to be kidding me. But that's where the journey began regarding autism and issues. But we didn't think it was vaccine injury at the time yet, because our doctors were saying, this is not vaccine. This is something that happened here. And, oh, it's genetic. But well, he wasn't showing signs of this when he was born or at 12 months. Is there a gene for it? No, they discovered a gene for it. No, they've spent billions of dollars, NIH, CDC, FDA, all all part of uh, our federal government has spent tons of money looking for genetic markers. They think that, oh, we got higher risk here. And, you know, it's the refrigerator moms deal. The the fathers are too old deal. There's all these. It's all these things in here, you know, uh, oh, they live too close to power lines. They live, you know, all these things, exposure to other toxins. They might be contributors, but they're not what's causing it. And not everyone with autism, especially, uh, you know, the whole wide spectrum, I believe there is, a, there is vaccine-induced autism. There is, and it's a large segment, but not everybody with autism was vaccine injured. So there might be a genetic component, and then they in what they call the environmental trigger. And the trigger for us was the vaccination. And so that's, and it wasn't until then, uh, 2004, that uh, my wife, uh, she took a sabbatical from work because she was really upset at our doctors said i'm going to find out what's really going on and she took six months off and decided to start doing research looking for everything and i would come home from work or uh, the night and there would be three or four additional six to eight inch three ring binders full of materials and i'd be going to a to a, a target or a, a walmart whatever buying printing paper because she was just printing them left and right. And we were just having, we had tons and tons of folders and these three ring binders full of, of things all indexed and tabulated. And it was, it was incredible. Um, and she came across um, the vaccine, uh, the national vaccine information center, which is Barbara Lowe Fisher's group. And Barbara Lowe Fisher was the one of the three parents that uh, basically back in the early eighties, lobbied Congress along with uh, Jeffrey Schwartz and Kathleen William, uh, Kathy Williams to create the um, 
the act, which basically established the, next, the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, which was passed into law in 1986, signed into law by President Ronald Reagan. It started in October 1 of 1988, and the uh, Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, is the administrator of the program. And so they they gave it to one of their sub-agencies, HRSA. Um, and they're the, the direct administrators, along with DOJ, uh, the attorneys for DOJ, actually represent the government. So you're suing the government. You're not suing the, the, the manufacturer. That was why we want the legislation passed, because it would have... The, uh, the claim back then in the early 80s and late 70s after the swine, fla uh, swine flu fa uh, fiasco of 76, if we start suing these uh, vaccine manufacturers, they're going to go out of business. Well, that's debatable. And then I kind of come back to that. So, so this vaccine injury compensation um, fund was about that it sounds like it's just compensating people for vaccine injuries, but but it also keeps you're not allowed then to bring the pharmaceutical companies to court like anybody else would be victim subject to tort law. They are insulated That's from correct. tort law by this act, right? Well, uh, at the beginning, you could, but here you had to there were some, some steps there. You actually had to file a petition seeking compensation and then you had to go through the program and wait 240 days and get a decision a final decision or opt out then you could go through state court and file a civil tort action in your state against the manufacturer but no one could do that no one could afford to do that and then it was soon covered up by the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Bruisewitz versus Watt Labs. And Justice Scalia at the time uh, ruled in favor of the, uh, of, uh, the majority that the MVICP, the compensation program, was the exclusive remedy for all vaccine injury. Now, that removed our legal right, which was Congress put in, uh, removed our legal right. So we cannot, right now, today, you cannot sue the manufacturer other than for fraud. But fraud is a very tough, high burden, and you can't, and you cannot go after because of the injury. Okay, you have so, to prove fraud, and that's tough. Right, because torts are for compensation. Torts right. are for injury. So if there's no damages that you suffer because you've already been compensated, you're not going to have. So unless you can actually prove malfeasance with knowledge like a crime, then so that you could still probably do that to this day. That's very interesting how they they structured that. Yeah. So it, it, it was, they wanted to have an administrative process as far as a, a no fault program. Um, but it's administered by HRSA, HHS. Um, the secretary of HHS is the defendant in the cases. And the uh, Department of Justice uh, Civil Torts Division attorneys represent the government. 
the Federal Court of Claims, U.S. Federal Court of Claims, if anybody's been to Washington, D.C., outside of the White House and go over to the other side of the park, over on one side is a big, huge red brick building. It's the U.S. Federal Court of Claims. It's the only court where you can directly sue the government for any sort, for vaccine injury, for tax, VA benefits, for all these things. That's that's all conducted in the U.S. Federal Court of Claims. But it sounds like the vaccine stuff is the only thing that isn't an actual government responsibility. How did they justify that when they got this passed, that the government, the U.S. government should be the plaintiff? I mean, the um, defendant here. Well, President Reagan at the time, he had reservations about signing this because he did not want the executive to be involved in this matter. He says is that this is a traditional court decision, meaning HHS and HRSA being the administrator and suing the uh, the secretary of HHS. But they passed it anyway. Reagan reluctantly signed it because it was part of a huge budget reconciliation defense bill. And he wanted his defense money. Kind of remember when Star Wars was starting yeah, to take off? OK, that's, that's what was all yeah. part of that mess. But anyway. Um, so you have this program over in the U.S., the federal court of claims. Now, as we call it, the vaccine court or whatever, it's actually not a court. There is no court process. You have a special master, which is basically a, uh, a program appointed uh, attorney of some sort that will oversee the process. You're represented by your attorney. Governments represented by their attorney, and you meet together with the special master, and they try to move along the petition and litigate this thing. Um, it's not uncommon. It used to take you know six, eight, ten years, eleven years, twelve years, and it, it's it's a rough process. It's not a quick process for most, uh, especially for children. And from there, you can actually appeal that decision to the federal court of claims where there's actually a judge, okay? A judge will look at the appeal and decide whether or not to uh, vacate the decision or whether to deny the motion for appeal or whatever, and then it goes from there. But then you can appeal to the next step, and that's the U.S., uh, the, uh, federal court of, uh, the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals. That's one step below the Supreme Court. And you got to be careful when you're going to that that court, a three judge panel, because those decisions are written in stone. From there, you could appeal to the Supreme Court through a writ and, you know, uh, Saturi. And only if the Supreme Court now the Supreme Court's listened to four or five different cases that's come out of the vaccine court process since 1988. Um, they don't really have an appetite right now so at that prior court so you can go to the supreme court and also the one right before that below that do both of those courts then those are very significant precedents probably correct so if, if anything's been settled before in those courts you're you're dead in the water so it's very important that only the best cases probably go forward there that's correct and i'll give you um uh an example when the autism omnibus proceeding started in 2007, which is an omnibus proceeding of representing 5,700 
cases, petitions, cases that were filed in the program by different <laughs> parents, they they selected six cases to be test cases, three um, for certain uh, parameters, such as uh, did the MMR cause autism or did the MMR and some Marisol containing vaccines cause autism, or did thimerosal uh, vaccines cause autism, that type of thing right there. And the first case to go off was uh, Michelle Cedillo, and then Rolf Hazelhurst. Um, those cases were uh, heard in 2007. They were denied in 2009, uh, appealed up, and they went up to the circuit in 2010 and were dismissed. And there's your problem. Now that's precedent. We cannot bring an autism case. Wow. So they're just using all. these processes against the, the people who are, who are the most hurt by this, using the powerful institutions that are supposed to serve the people to shut the people out, it sounds like. Brad, I'm going to build a case that's going to blow your mind here. And that is, is that we're no longer about science anymore. This is all about policy. So can we um, so but this stuff doesn't pertain to the covid vaccine because the covid vaccine isn't um, this doesn't apply to that because it isn't available to children and pregnant women. Right. Or it's not well, approved. right. Um, vaccines that are, are approved by the CDC using their ACIP committee uh, to approve. If it's approved for routine administration to children and or pregnant mothers, that's one step. The second step is Congress must attach a tax, right. which is that levy of 75 cents per antigen to, to there. So the MMR is $2.25. Uh, $2. Um, which you your know. insurance company pays anyway. There's no... Well, someone right? does. Yeah, the, con yeah. the whoever's con uh, Whoever. either... Yeah, insurance companies, but the majority of the purchasing of uh, vaccines in the United States is the U.S. federal government. Oh, I've determined approximately 54 <laughs> percent of all vaccines purchased in the United States are from federal taxpayer dollars through. And then they're distributed through all their different vaccine programs. DOD. I mean, that really, uh, I characterize that as fascism, where they just basically, <laughs> the government and the corporations are in partnership. They uh, get your tax money, they decide what to do with it, and it actually injures you. But there's right. no accountability to, to take a tax. The whole point, I've always a big fan of tort law because. I'm a libertarian. I don't like a lot of statutes. I don't like a lot of a priori or whatever they call it, like beforehand yeah. laws. And then but when you what I liked about the tour law is it motivated somebody where it's quite costly to go through this process, but it gets individuals on a case by case basis to deter bad behavior by getting outsized compensation for their injury and by delivering, meeting out severe consequences that are. 100% consequential of action to the actor, which causes actors to think twice about, about the chances that they're going to take with other people. When you disconnect the consequences from the action, anybody who has kids knows you're going to get <laughs> be reckless behavior. Well, that's what you have in the pharmaceutical industry uh, because of the vaccine pharmaceutical industry. There's no accountability yet. That was promoted. This whole program was promoted that to give immunity 
to the vaccine manufacturers. And they therefore they can then continue to manufacture and create newer and safer vaccines. And that's a false narrative. Of course. It is. It There's no accountability. Money. There's nothing there. So build um, that mind blowing case. And they're I filthy rich, too. No accountability. And they're filthy rich is not a good combination. OK, so here we go. Now, every month, the vaccine manufacturers send to the U.S. Treasury. This levy, this tax, OK, that on sales. So it's not out of their pocket. They're just collecting it like a business fund sales tax. They're sending it to the U.S. Treasury. U.S. Treasury takes that cash, converts most of it into U.S. Treasury T-bonds, T-notes, whatever, pockets the cash and puts it into the general fund. The amount of the Treasury is then are transferred over into the balance sheet of the, uh, the Vaccine Injury Trust Fund, which is currently about $4.1 billion. And we've paid out over $4.6 billion. So you have this trust fund sitting over there that hardly has any cash, got a lot of paper notes, and it's collecting interest every quarter from the U.S. Treasury plus the sale proceeds, okay? So that's how the money is coming in. The money going out is compensation, medical expert costs, attorney fees, and then the three different agencies, the federal courts, HHR, HRSA, and DOJ, get an annual appropriation out of this trust fund to help buy down or lower their cost for uh, administering this program, approximately about $11.2 million each every year. So there's money going out to the, these funds. I determined that that 75 cents is a lie. And I figured it out by looking and examining the U.S. Treasury spreadsheets and i got it confirmed by a um an hhs official 25 percent of all the money coming in is taken out prior to the conversion and sent to the u.s uh, general fund and it's in statute it's an irs statute that is lost in the middle of fifteen thousand pages of statutes says is that any trust fund administered by the u.s federal government is subject to a 25% administrative fee. So they take 25. So it's not 75 cents, it's 59 and a half cents. And money's coming in still. And the trust fund is building every year. Okay. So this is the reason why our federal government doesn't want to, you know, you hear a lot of people, well, we need to get rid of this and let people sue the, the pharmaceutical industry. It doesn't matter whether you're Democrat or Republican. The federal government loves this program because it makes them a ton of money. I feel like a genius mastermind must have structured it that way to know that it would be forever defended by the institution. So like if the big pharma had structured it, handed it off to the government, then they know that the venal bureaucracy is going right. to defend it with its life. I, I read I was reading the 2017 Johns Hopkins Spars document. I don't know if you're familiar with that, mm. but it's one of those like event 201 things where they basically blueprint. It's a blueprint for what's happening right now. This one is like amazing. There's 25 talking points that really are tracking very closely. The only ones that we haven't gotten to yet include apologies for vaccine injury and getting Congress to fund directly 
the vaccine compensation fund that's in yeah. the Johns Hopkins plan. So I kind of feel like th- this is going to get a lot bigger. Well, I think I remember running across that article. I remember thinking, I remember seeing that. I got to go back and look for it. You got to go back and just look at the like the last several chapters because that's all that's remaining. If you go back and listen, look at the earlier ones, you'll laugh. Like there's the Texas blackout is in there. Um, the president liking or not liking hydroxychloroquine or whatever they called it in that thing okay. is in there. It's And this was written in 2017. Oh, so geez. so since the first like 22 of them came true and the, the the last three are supposed to happen like 18 months or two years out, I'm a little worried. <laughs> okay. Didn't you say there was one in there where they talked about how they were going to talk about the sacrifice of the yes. first people who took the vaccine? Yes, they were. They were trying to write the speech for the president to say. Um, we acknowledge the grief of the people who were injured by the vaccine and they were trying to decide whether or not they should thank them for the sacrifice they made by taking a vaccine before all the information was known. Hmm. And I mean, it's chilling. It's chilling. And I'm not saying it's going to come true, but I'm saying that the first 22 things did come true. (laughs) So good. Well, anyway, so you got Congress has to attach this tax. That's the second step. First step, you know, uh, the approval from the ASIP committee. The third step is the one that's kind of controversial and it takes a while. And that is the secretary of HHS must list that vaccine or vaccines on in the federal register and have hold it open for open comment. So that takes six months to eight months. Answer that. Now, the problem with that is, is that it can take up to two years. And if you complete that process, then that vaccine is automatically moved into the MVICP as a covered vaccine with known injury table. It might cause seizures from the, you know, one in a hundred thousand might, you know, whatever it uh, could be. That's how it gets into the MVICP. Now there is a few um, vaccines out there that are commonly being promoted that are not covered. That's, your shingles vaccines, shingle ritz and all those by Walgreens and CVS. Pertussis. What about the new pertussis well, and the hepatitis ones? Uh, hepatitis B, hepatitis A, and everything dealing with uh, DTAP and, and uh, TDAP, which is your um, tetanus and your wholesale, I mean, your uh, acellular pertussis, that's all covered. Okay. I only ask because Novavax is using a new protein subunit format and it's only been used in the pertussis and I think a hepatitis one so far. And they're dragging their feet on the Novavax one, but it's the one that scares me the least because it's at least a technology we've seen before. It causes this kind of injury. It looks like the mRNA stuff causes 10 times the injury of the next highest one of the mm-hmm. more conventional format. So that's why I was just wondering if, there, well, if those are uh, well, if been you, through if- the paces. If you want to, you can go out to the HRSA website and look under the MVICP page, and then you can find what they call the vaccine injury table. And that'll list. Yes, I've done that. The, all the vaccines and also the injuries that were the what they call accept, acceptable or they'll concede to that uh, injury. Um, so you have that. Now, here's the thing. This used to be a children's program. This was designed for is no longer for children. I've tracked all the decisions. I'm up over 14,000 decisions in my database. I'm looking at, and I saw the switch where 
adults are being compensated this current year, this fiscal year, 96% of all compensated cases are adults. What Children, that means specifically? Flu it's shot. Not shingles. And, no, flu shot and Tdap booster are causing, but see, the children's vaccines are not being compensated. And this is where I'm going to build a case for Brad. I told him that I was going to blow his mind. <laughs> Excellent. He, here we go. This is that it's all about policy. In the beginning, children were dying of SIDS from vaccine, and the program was compensating this death certificate. You just show your death certificate and maybe get a, a doctor to say, yeah, you know, child was, was vaccinated. It was fussy. The next morning, the child is blue. And we rushed him to the hospital, he's, 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 and he passed away. They're compensating. They were there, and the most you could get compensated was two hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. That's it. <laughs> well, we were compensating all those cases. Then something happened right before Obama. It was two thousand six, two thousand seven. Is you could see a policy change in a lot of children's injuries and how they were what they call litigated at this program. SIDS is no longer um, compensated. You're actually be dismissed. You cannot bring a case. And How they did went, that happen? Well, what they did is they did a series of cases and they have um, Boltman um, is a couple of family where their child uh, died of SIDS and they brought the case in 2017 and the special master uh, went through and listened to medical experts. And there was a medical expert out of Missouri. His name and his neuropathologist. His name is um, Dr. Douglas Miller. And he had a theory. And that is, is that with, with SIDS, they always say there's this, what they call this triple risk um, a diagram. It's like a triangle. And one of them, that's the one that's it's uncontrollable, is what they call external stressor. What is the external stressor? Could it be that the child suffocated, rolled in the blanket, did, you know, whatever the case may be? Douglas Miller put out the theory, and he had some pretty good science to support it, that the vaccine can be an external stressor, creating the cytokine storm in the brain, in the medulla, and therefore causing death to the infant. The special master went through the hearing, agreed with it, um, and they ruled in favor. The government did not want this. They appealed to the federal circuit uh, for the federal court of claims. They got a judge there. They went judge shopping and they found a judge that would uh, vacate the uh, Supreme, uh, the special master's decision. Then the Boatmans appealed up to the federal circuit court, uh, federal circuit court of appeals. Remember, this is the step below the Supreme Court. Things get written in stone up here. The oral argument. This is what this is what's crazy. The oral argument was not on about science. The government didn't put it about science. They said to the judges, and I'm paraphrasing, said, "Your honors." If you award compensation to the family, then parents will not vaccinate their children. That was their statement. And 
the judge two to one voted in favor of the government and basically shut down the boatmen's. And we couldn't pro proceed. But there was also another case, the Nunez-Diaz case that came along. This one had tissue samples, not just a medical theory. This had actual samples. And we thought this one is going to be really strong case. And this is 2019. And it was argued. And the Federal Circuit actually added on and they became activists judges yeah. at the time because you have to uh, you have to have a medical plausible medical theory is one step well they said well not only do you have to have a, a plausible medical theory you also have to have a consensus of the medical community yes i cite that all the time you did blow That's my mind by <laughs> the way they so you have to have a, they added something that wasn't even in the statute in the law that says you have to have a medical uh, consensus of the medical community. And so, that gives they, them so they, much power too to manipulate that consensus. Monica and I were talking about that recently, how the media, they had some experts that they brought on where they were saying people need to understand that they can't just look up facts and verify the things that these medical experts and scientists are saying, because science is a process of consensus building. So right. essentially it was we just wait for this consensus to be built. You're not allowed to look anything up and then we'll tell you what the truth is. That I mean, that is way too much power for a group of people. Yeah, to have. that's a that's a good point, because I've always said that like medical. I learned this in law school, which was a while ago that in medical malpractice requires not that you help or hurt or whatever, but that you do what is considered common practice. But what you're saying goes even beyond that. And that's called what we also learned in law school is called I was it's a policy decision mm -hmm. and policy decisions, which are activist judges. It's a, just a, a gross violation of the separation of powers because that's a legislative decision right. being brought down by the courts. And then there is no check on on that it's done like you said it's written in stone it's it's done congress wrote the legislation and there was no intent and then you know as far as proving causation that's what it was all about so you have sids so we can no longer bring cases for sids there's another way another thing that happened and does, that does is SIDS still happen all the time oh gosh all the time all you have to do is FOIA your local state um, health department and ask for all the death certificates of children under the age of 12 months. I, I want to ask were not nonviolent deaths and you'll see them. Um, you'll see them passing away 12, 14, 18, 24 hours later. Wow. Well, something I heard you bring up in a previous interview about uh, the that Tylenol can exacerbate this problem. Is that you think that's a factor in SIDS or what's the story with that? Well, it could be. I don't know enough science around Tylenol other than I would never give Tylenol to anyone. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but it, I, I have read that there's a link between vaccine like this is now the official narrative that it's not the vaccines it's the vaccines plus Tylenol. Is that do you think that there's any Possible oh, sure. To that? Uh, okay. Yeah, because it prevents the body from detoxifying itself. Right. And I would say that there's been this huge surge in autism and they're like 
people say, well, it's correlated with this huge surge in the number of vaccines kids get. But it may also be correlated from what I've read with the fact that at a certain point when they had that rise syndrome uh, hysteria, kids were no longer allowed to take aspirin, baby aspirin, whatever. And they switched the recommendation from aspirin to Tylenol. And that, too, coincides with this big um, thing. So it could be like multiple factors, which is why if you did a vaccine study to see about the injury, you wouldn't necessarily see anything because unless you're actually also giving Tylenol, which in the real world is what the doctors are telling people to do. So I would just caution people to look into that. I, well, yeah, I, I would never ask any any child or, or uh, toddler at all. Yeah, adult, adults, well, maybe. But see, it, Tylenol is known to pr- block the uh, glutathione process that allows you to detoxify. So that, that's a problem there. But um, so we have SIDS. Then we have epilepsy and seizures. And here's how this works. The, when we moved, when the United States moved from a DTAP, uh, DPT vaccine, which was very dirty and very dangerous, we moved to an acellular, um, D, what they call the DTAP. There was a, a, a common, uh, a very, what we call rare, I don't know if I would call it rare, but one out of every 50,000, maybe one out of every 25,000 kids would have early onset of epilepsy and or seizures. And this program was compensating these children for this injury. Okay. Up until once again, 2006, 2007. And the government found a study in Australia from a doctor who only looked at 14 kids and concluded that if they have a gene mutation called Dravet syndrome, which is the SCN1A gene mutation, it's not the vaccine that's causing early onset of epilepsy or seizures. It's the genetic condition. Problem with that study is is it's non-conclusive. It wasn't exact. And it was such when you do a study of 14 people, it's 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 nonsense, especially I mean, when you have a condition that's one out of every 25,000. Right. You're supposed to do a study in that large case numbers. of like 50,000. Yeah. Large. You numbers. Know, so at least you have a chance. Even 50,000 is probably not enough. But writ larger than that, if you're giving it to 50 million people, there's more kids, more people will be injured than the than right. got the swine flu vaccine pulled. Yeah. So you have this. And it got introduced and got moved up in a case all the way up into the uh, uh, Court of Appeals, once again, written in stone. And then another decision comes about, and this is the one that's really is really sad. In a Darabu case, a little girl out of Miami, um, the judges ruled that in order for cases to move forward, they have to be tested for the uh, Duray syndrome. They have to have a genetic test conducted. And if you have this marker, then your case is dismissed. But what if you need the external stressor? Uh, who knows? But Because in tort law, an extra shell psyche is not a defense, is not a de- like a, a whatever. 
well, the well, defendant to the can't world. say, well, you were an eggshell psyche, like in the real world. But in every other case, it doesn't work that way. Right. Well, welcome to the vaccine court. Wow. Um, so basically now it forces. So if if you if your child um, taking this genetic test and it shows that you do have an issue with the SCN1A gene, then your case is automatically dismissed and you may have to move on and you, you don't, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, now it was later proved, and that was 2006 and 2007. It was later uh, uh, disproved in 2018 in Oliver case, um, but it doesn't matter. It was already set up up there. So one, SIDS, not con uh, compensable. Two, DTAP, seizures and early onset of epilepsy, not compensable. Then you have Gardasil, which was approved and added to the program in 2007 without a vaccine injury table, known injuries other than death, um, which is an automatic. And there was no saline placebo study before that got approved. That is correct. They used so like had, a, with something with adjuvants in it, which is the thing that gets people sick most of the time, right. if not all the time. So you have all these girls taking Gardasil. What I notice is that I'm tracking, there's 470 cases in the court system since uh, the beginning of Gardasil, and, which is kind of a small amount, but it's, I've noticed something, and that is the more severe injuries occur on the second series. And it's when the second series is combined with the meningitis vaccine or the flu vaccine or something else. Because generally, when you get that, originally the Gardasil was a series of three. Then they moved to the new Gardasil that's only two. But for the series of three, you get the first one. Your, your immune system is so inflamed, they develop start developing huge acne issues, depression issues, oh. and a whole bunch of other things. And then when they come back six months later and get the second one, that usually throws a lot of girls off the cliff or over the cliff, actually. And um, that's what causes the problem. But then that's usually when they combine it with a meningitis or a flu vaccine or something else. So we have those problems and they're dismissing them. And then they develop POTS. And POTS is a crazy little um I don't know if uh, anybody who's watched the movie Vax 2, if there's a movie called Vax 2, in the opening, there's a girl. It's basically losing your sense of bal a balance, equilibrium. You can't walk. Uh, everything, from when, you, when you stand up, blood pressure drops, everything like this. And it's a series of symptoms. It's a syndrome. And so it's a series of, they're dismissing every one of them because they don't want those injuries to be compensable. It's a policy decision once again. So you what was the name of that again? I'm sorry. POTS, P-O-T-S. P-O-T-S. Okay. And um, it's um, it's a series of, it's called posture something, whatever. I can't remember exactly. But it's basically you drop your blood pressure uh, you equilibrium, equilibrium goes, um, fainting, everything, a whole bunch of stuff. You can't walk. And, um, and it really is a very debilitating, uh, uh, 
disorder to so many. That decision, there's a policy decision not to award compensation. Even if you got medical experts left and right lined up to testify in your behalf, they're not going to award that. Um, so you have that. Then, okay, Monica, here's the other one with Gardasil. The first, mm, the first series of uh, Gardasil vaccines, and when they came out, you know, 2007, 2008, were given to girls 11, 12, 13, 14 years of age. They didn't know they became sterile and had other issues until when they reached 21, 22, 23, when they're maybe starting to think about starting a family. And they can't do anything. The statute of limitations is only three years. Wow. Even from when you discover the injury? When do? Well, girls' menstrual cycles when they're teenagers, especially young teenagers, are not um, regular. Right. So they should have discovered. I would not let them get my I didn't know about vaccines. I let my kids get totally vaccinated, but I wouldn't let them do the Gardasil one because I heard a higher side chat with those two women who wrote the book about it saying well, a lot of this stuff, which is known and they're still get. I mean, they're it's absolutely and they give it to boys now, too. Yes, they give it to boys. Um, the Garcil 9 is now approved for boys and it's actually approved to, uh, for anybody up to the age of 46. Why? I have no idea. Uh, clinical studies were never done on young teenagers nor older now, adults. Could you sue about this? Is this something that falls under the vaccine injury compensation fund or is it not? Because if it doesn't fall under the compensation fund, you can sue in tort law, can't you? Only for fraud. St oh, so even like shingles? Shingles is different. Okay. Shingles, there's but a Gardasil's not different. Yeah. Gar Gardasil's in the program. Okay. So you've got SIDS. Right. You got DTAP. Right. Now we got Gardasil. Right. Okay. So you basically have shut out almost all child childhood vaccination injuries. Thus, fluke shot comes approved in two, uh, 2005. Start seeing the injuries in 2007. In 2012, it takes over, and it's been the number one injury, and it's adults. Guillain-Barre or shoulder injury, and shoulder injuries is, is the most prominent. So, therefore, this program is compensating adults, not compensating children, yet the program is about children. Okay? So, that's how that works. Now, Quickly, and I know we don't have much time left, but let's move over to the No, we COVID. can go over if okay. you have time, because I would like to hear. Not a problem. Um, yeah. Not a problem. Let's talk about COVID and the countermeasures program. The countermeasures program is entirely different. It was established, the original program was established in 2005 when the PREP Act was passed, Public Readiness uh, Emergency uh, Planning Program, and basically gives a lot of leeway, a lot of uh, authority to the secretary of HHS, no court oversight, no judicial oversight, no congressional oversight. This is pure executive branch. They can run roughshod over everything, quarantines, everything. And this is what's really scary about this program. Now, they created a compensation program, but they didn't fund it. So they got embarrassed when this, then the swine flu of 2009 came about and a whole bunch of people got injured. 
And Congress said, okay, we got to do something here. So they actually added some money and formalized the injury uh, program to be called the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program in 2010. And that's where the swine flu vaccine the, uh, from 2009 was moved in. But this is where Zika and Ebola vaccines are. You know, Zika. You know that Zika was really yeah. is a pesticide thing. Well, anthrax vaccine um, and other what they call countermeasures. It doesn't have to be a vaccine. MCM. Yeah, that was all over Event 201. Medical countermeasures all yeah. over it. So this is where. Wow. And, that, and then no one really paid attention to it because we, you know, it was never used nationwide. And I was actually speaking to a group in Minneapolis in February of 2020. And I was talking about the PREP Act, and I was telling people, well, you need to pay attention to this thing because it's scary. And no one says, oh, you got to be kidding me. Well, guess what happens the following month? Um, Boom, there we are. And the secretary declares the PREP Act for um, March of 2020, and it expires four years later, plus what we call a six-month wind-down. So October of 2024 is when the PREP Act will actually sundown, unless the Secretary of HHS at the time rescinds it or executive order by the president. Congress can't do a damn thing. The Supreme Court can't do a damn thing. So wait, this came down just totally coincided with the COVID thing. And it no. was well, the prep act itself was, was because of the, and you remember the anthrax scare and the avian flu scare back in 2004 and the anthrax yeah. in 2003. That's yeah. where this whole thing started. Avian flu didn't, didn't materialize. And anthrax was basically, you know, a wacko sending stuff through the, through the mail, but Congress decided to put stuff together. And then in 2005, they passed the legislation. So that's okay. where it all started. So I think and I got a little lost at what happened in March 2020. That's when the secretary of HHS declares PREP Act to be the law of the land. OK. Because of the public health emergency of COVID. Got it. OK. With that, I he announced that, that. So he announced a PREP Act declaration. That's correct. Pursuant to the PREP Act, which stands for Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Readiness. Act. Right. Okay. I understand. Okay. Now, so you have this. Then the secretary is going, wait a minute, we got COVID. We've never seen this thing before. We're going to have some problems. So he starts declaring amendments. He's adding amendments without any oversight. He's adding amendments to include equipment manufacturers, those manufacturers that manufacture the ventilators. PPE, gloves, masks, gowns, and all this stuff that wasn't in the original PREP Act, but now it's an amendment. Okay. So you have these things, and he's expanding on what they call covered persons. Who can administer a medicine, a vaccine, a therapeutic, uh, a medical device, whatever? They're going to be covered so they cannot be sued unless they're what they call willful misconduct. So if you follow uh, manufacturers' recommendations or FDA guidance, SCDC guidance, as a nurse, as a doctor, as a whatever you are, you're 
you will be covered and you will not be sued um, for any damages. We had a lot of ventilators and things like this going around. So that's why they won't try things if, if it's not working. They're reluctant to try things that could be effective because of this policy. It sounds like I've, I've dealt with doctors in the past where they've just been so, so reluctant to try anything outside of, of what they are allowed to try. And it sounds like this is exactly one of the reasons why they won't. You're correct. That. What you're talking about is uh, uh, using something off label. Yeah. And off label. Now, the FDA is given what they call an emergency youth authorization to one to the vaccines, but also for certain types of masks and certain types of ther- you know, drugs, whatever. And as long as you use them for that, you're fine. But if you have a medicine or uh, even let's just an example, a vitamin, but that's it won't be covered because it wasn't part of the declaration or an amendment. And it's going to be used off label. Therefore, your actions could be negligent. Um, you know, things like that. So that's why doctors and nurses, they're not going to go after stuff that's off label that could be repurposed. And that's why you have this nasty battle of HCQ and, and vermectin and everything else. And, and it's just, it's totally ridiculous. Okay. But there was an amendment that caught my eye at the end of August. And I wrote about it uh, on my blog and I put it out there and uh, a few other places. It was a, it was an amendment to allow pharmacists to administer the childhood vaccine schedule doesn't have anything to do with COVID. Now, states traditionally have been the ones to decide who can administer a vaccine, to whom, and at what age. Yeah, they license them, and it's under the 10th Amendment police powers. Right. A lot of states don't allow anybody but a doctor to administer or an RN to administer a vaccine. Some states allow pharmacists to administer a flu shot. Some states allow dentists to administer a flu shot. But it's all regulated by the states. This is the first time, and I was so concerned about this, we're federalizing a vaccine policy instead of something done by the state. So it's overriding. Okay, so you have this declaration. Here's the thing. The PREP Act expires in October of 2024. This amendment doesn't. How is that possible? It has nothing to do with the COVID. <laughs> they snuck in, and I'm worried about other things expanding. Are they going to use the PREP Act as the vehicle to expand vaccination policy and mandates? and override the states. And that's what I think is happening here. And it will boil down to this. HHS and HRSA officials will not comment on this, on this one topic. Several of us have been asking for it, asking for it, will you? And they will, they're refusing to comment on this. I, I talked to, um, I don't know if you know him, he does really great truth documentaries, Italian guy, Massimo Matsuko. And I, I asked him, I like to ask people this question, like, what is the 
you know, what, who, where is the power on earth? Like what's, what's the true nature of the power? And he said, it's big pharma. He thinks like the most powerful mm-hmm. thing is big pharma. And it feels like they're they're They have more power than, than legislators, than judiciary, than um, it transcends national borders. I mean, what's happened here, the way that the COVID lockdowns have gone in lockstep, both from from vertically and Mm -hmm. horizontally, from local to federal to international and every country the same, for the most part. And if they haven't, like weirdly, their president seems to end up dead. But I just I wonder, like, do you do you is it almost um you know, hard to believe how much power big pharma has. Or no, do you think that's, it's not uh, as they're, obvious. They're the number one lobbyist in Congress, and that's just the tip of the iceberg for them. Um, they also control most of the science. Um, which because Johns Hopkins looks like when I read that 2017 Spars document, it, it and it said how they were scenarioing out this and that. It really looked to me. I used to be a banker and I would like read company documents and mm-hmm. it just looked to me like what a company would do to see, you know, to evaluate the risks or or to do upside projections and stuff. It looked like Johns Hopkins was acting simply as as a like a you know, a subcontractor for big pharma for, for vaccine companies. They are because it's this is where all their money comes from. And um, it's unfortunate that our major healthcare systems and our major universities that are supposed to be medical research facilities are all owned by pharma. Do and, you have a sense of who then owns pharma? I mean, does this go back to you know some of the big families of money and power from 100 years ago? I mean, uh, I don't if know. There, if I, go, public- I, I have I have I, I don't know that, but I know that pharma is so powerful. Um, you know, if we're going to associate them with the Rothschilds and everybody else, I don't know. Um, but not even them necessarily, but just like it seems so. So huge. It seems bigger than just a big corporation with a CEO who reports to a board. You know, it feels more coordinated than that. Sure it is. But it's also very consolidated. There's, you know, there's six huge companies and it doesn't take a rocket science to understand that, you know, Merck has has a, a monopoly situation for most of the children's vaccines in the United States. Pfizer is now coming in. You know, they've got the flu and the covid. And Merck's not a part of the COVID, if you notice that. So everybody's kind of state kind of staked their territory out. But so here's what we've got. We've got the COVID issue. Now, pre-COVID, there was approximately 500 petitions filed in the countermeasures, which I call the CICP, for compensation. And there's only a one-year statute of limitations here. There is no judicial oversight, no judicial appeals. You don't go anywhere. You're you're actually filing a petition with Secretary of HHS, and you have one appeal. That's back to the same damn department that denied your uh, your your petition to begin with. So you're not going anywhere. They only compensated 39 out of the approximately 500 uh, petitions that were filed pre-COVID. They were the H1N1, the swine flu for Guillain Barre. That's what most of them were. Okay. But the way the countermeasures program also works is you you do not have the ability to bring an attorney or medical experts to help you with your case. It's just you, the papers in your hand, and the secretary of HHS. 
Then there's a, they're also the payer of last resort. So when you look at that, of those 39 petitions that were compensated, they determined 10 of them had benefits for ongoing benefits from private insurance and other pensions, whatever, that would compensate them. So they basically said, yes, you were damaged by a vaccine, the H1N1, but you're not going to receive a check because your private insurance is going to take care of you. There was 29 that actually received money. Okay. Now you got 520 and then the second number is 29. Currently, there's approximately 24, 20, no, actually 2,500 petitions filed since July 1 for uh, compensation from COVID-related injuries. Uh, vaccines, most of them. There's a few ventilators and a few other things. Not one has been moved on. And we know now that one of the administrators of HRSA mentioned to an off supposedly an off-the-record comment to a media-type person, we're going to sit on the vaccine petitions. We don't want to move forward with them. Right. Because they don't want the the spotlight on them. They want it all rolled out. That's what that 2017 sparse thing. They want it all rolled out before this stuff. That's why I try to tell people like um it will it will come out like hold your keep your seat right. and file your suits. It will come out. But they are just trying to ramrod this stuff through before it's um, before there's a, a official adjudication. Right. So they're not going to do anything. They're going to sit on these and there's nothing in the statute for the CICP to move that petition along so they can sit on it for 10 years if they want to. There's nothing in the really? statute. Yeah. So they, you you have a statute of limitations to file, but they don't have a to move. A That's clock. correct. That's right. There's no internal clock. So you have all these petitions and they're just piling up. I've got that, I just don't even understand that. Like all all court proceedings have those kind of now. This is an administrative process. Right, it's not right, a not right. a judicial right. process. Okay. Wow. Now Here's here's where this gets crazy. Brad, do you know what the difference between do you know what the legal term? And Monica probably knows this, but Brad, do you know what we call legal distinct? What do you legal distinct? I'm not familiar with that. Okay, when the FDA approved Pfizer's vaccine, gave them the full biologic, uh, what they call the BLA um, just a few weeks ago in their letter, they wrote that this comerity or whatever call it. Comerity. Yeah, I can't pronounce it, so I call it Cinderella. (laughs) So the Cinderella vaccine is now approved, okay? But it's not available. It won't be available for several more months, but it's approved. But in their letter, they said it can be interchangeably used with the EUA version, but it's still legally distinct in the same. Yeah, what frame. was that all about? I didn't know. It's in the same sentence. I saw it, but I couldn't figure out what the significance not, of that. Not, was. We don't really know what that means, other than it's quite possible that if the vaccine ever is moved over into the MBICP, right? Only the approved vaccine goes over, right? That and I did the know. I did. And I actually, that's when I reached out and contacted you because I yeah. was like, could this be part of that? The EUA version stays in the countermeasures under the PREP Act, 
which means is that the people who submit petitions now are stuck. They have they have to sit in the prep act and they will expire, you know, whenever. But those who get injured from the new Cinderella might be able to go into the MVICP. We don't know that. But here's the here's where I think it won't happen. The reason why, because if it does, then it gets litigated by attorneys and medical experts in the MVICP and pharma doesn't want that to happen. So you got it. They're sitting on it over at HRSA and they don't want it to go over to the MVICP. And that's why these, these injuries are building up and it's, it's, it's just maddening. Can you point about, uh, make your point or tell us a little bit about how the injuries are underreported because they're like categorized as a variety of different injuries and essentially they're the same. Right. Okay. So what we're talking about is the VAR system, the voluntary um, adverse event reporting system, which was, part of the uh, legislation to establish the MVICP. CDC slash FDA got that up and running in 1990. And what it is, it's a voluntary reporting where, and it's a, there's actually a federal statute that says federal law, like uh, the clinicians, doctors and nurses must report uh, serious adverse events, but it also allows for family members to in, input those reports too. You have this going through, and up until December of 2020, everybody thought, well, that's just, you know, it's just underreporting. And yes, we had the Harvard Pilgrim uh, HMO did a, re, you know, did their own study, and it showed that it was one, less than 1% of all adverse events were, re, were reported by clinicians. Okay. So it's vastly underreported. But the other problem was, is that you can almost input anything into the system. So you had this famous, oh, I got the flu shot and turned into the Jolly Green Giant. Or I got, you know, the Tdap booster and I grew a third forearm out of my forehead or something like that. <laughs> um, you had those in there. So people were junking it up. Um, but those, the CDC does clean those things out. But since COVID, there has been a huge shift in VARES. And we are seeing 75% of all the serious adverse events are now being reported by clinicians, not by families, by clinicians. You can see it in the language. And then when the, first, when, when the COVID vaccine first came out, everybody's talking about uh, facial, facial paralysis or Bell's palsy and stuff like this. And CDC says, well, we got 240 reports of it. It's not that many like this. Well, what they said was actually true based on the extreme language that they used. When you go in there, you can define Bell's palsy by different spelling, by calling it facial paralysis, by calling it something else. We found over 11 different definitions of the same medical condition. So the number of reports swelled up to over, you know, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000. And this is the way the CDC plays this word game. Um, you know, so they're talking about now the one that I'm on to right now is miscarriages. And the CDC says it's safe for pregnant mothers to get this because they released a couple studies showing that there was no difference in 
vaccinated versus unvaccinated you know, uh, pregnant mothers. Well, what they didn't tell people, and it's buried in the studies, they only use third trimester results. They didn't report the first trimester or the second trimester, which we're seeing, <clears throat> excuse me, anywhere from 10 to 12 times the rate of miscarriages in the vaccinated group versus the unvaccinated. Why group. aren't they reporting them? They hid the data because they don't want that. When Mother's Day came out, there was a couple big studies that were released saying, hey, pregnant mothers, it's, it's safe. Well, what's happening is, is that the first semester and the tri uh, first trimester and the second trimester, you're seeing a tremendous increase in miscarriages. That's sick. Yes. It's, it, it, and I started looking at it just in my home state of Minnesota, and I looked at it. And then I said, wait a minute. So I picked another state, started to go in there and looked at the reports, and I'm going, wait a minute, something's wrong here. And all the, the VAERS reports are all first semester and, and second, uh, uh, first trimester and second trimester. Okay. But it's once again, it's only VAERS reports. So I don't know how many non-reported incidents are out there. And I imagine it's a tremendous number that are just never reported. Okay. Oh, we lost your audio there for a sec. <laughs> oh, you're, you're back. Wayne? Oh, excuse me. That was me. I that think Wayne's you. muted. Wayne, are you muted? I'll ask him to unmute you. Is he unmuted? Yeah, yeah. He's unmuted. Sorry. Well, how, did, how did I yeah. get muted? I don't know. Oh, well, NSA. <laughs> so, so well, maybe we should talk a little faster and get to wrap it up. But I, um, although I, there's much more I want to ask you, but I'm going to ask you this. So the pregnant women nurses and in, in this town I live in, like the police force, they're, they're getting very pressured, 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 pressured mm -hmm. to get the vaccine. And I'm wondering your opinion of how this is going to play out, because some people will draw the line and not be vaccinated. Do you think that when the truth comes out, then they, there won't be a vaccine apartheid? Do you have any sense of how bad it's going to be for the separated between vaccinated people and unvaccinated? I mean, I assume you did not get the COVID vaccine. No, we, I, I absolutely refuse to. Yeah, um, me too. But I just I'm just wondering, you know, what what lies ahead for us? The, the dirty, be, unvaxxed, it, you know, it, it's a nasty battle for nurses and doctors. That's where the real ugly part is going to be, because. But we also noticed that the reports last week of many nurses in the uh, Minneapolis VA walked out. Um, and the big date for us here in the Minneapolis St. Paul area is October 1. Yeah, that's when we got three major healthcare systems. Their, their termination date is October 1. And a lot of nurses have already quit. So you have newspaper articles and, and news pieces being written here. And it's the same thing around the country that, you know, the hospitals are being pushed to the limit. There's no more room. The hospital, well, they're not what they're taking. They're forgetting to talk to you about what they call staffed hospital rooms, staffed beds. When you have less, when you have 50% beds available because you don't have nurses and doctors, then they think, oh, it's uh, the utilization is 100%. No, it's not. 
Yeah, we've talked about that a lot. They There's designate beds as ICU or whatever. Right. They designate it. So you can, however you designate it, it should always be 100%. Why are you designating beds that are empty? Right. But here's where I think this whole thing goes. Yeah. Um, Tom Friedman, Dr. Tom Friedman, I don't, I shouldn't call him doctor anymore. Former the CDC former C- head. Yeah, the former CDC that was actually, he even, uh, he was accused of, um uh, harassment of female workers at CDC and even acknowledged it, but never charged. He had to leave. Um, he wrote an op-ed in the time, a New York Times, I believe it was this, yesterday or this morning. I can't remember uh, which date. He's basically calling for a national passport system, but he disguises it in his five-step plan. This is where we're heading. We're heading into a passport system and verification. So we're going to create a caste system. We're going to have segregation all over again. Those who vaccinate and are fully vaccinated, plus against those who will not vaccinate and those who did vaccinate, maybe the first round and say, no more. I don't want any more of it. Um, My concern is we're heading to a civil war and it won't be like we saw the North versus the South but it's going to be something very similar. It's going to be, it's going to be to the point. I think the economy turns south uh, early this spring. Uh, the indications are you saw the Federal Reserve and uh, announced rising of um, interest rates. I think uh, the monetary supply is drying up. Um, people are going to be uh, quitting their jobs. Won't be able to find other. Um, and then you're going to have these states um, who will actually defend people's rights. And then you have states that will not defend people's rights. And it's going to get I think it's this winter is going to be the dark winter. And hopefully we don't see loss of life because of what I think there's a medical term called pathogenic uh, priming, where people who um, have taken the vaccine might be subject yeah. Antibody dependent immune enhancement where the vaccines create the antibodies, Mm -hmm. but they're not neutralizing for very closely related variants and instead actually deliver virus uh, Mm -hmm. DNA into cells that would not otherwise get in there. I think that's I think that as as these variants, you know, the Delta variant is one thing. This mu variant is really is going to be even worse. And I was thinking that's where the deaths would start piling up. I think it's going to, it's going to happen. Um, but we're careful. We, I, I've always told people, you know, take, you know, beef up on your vitamin C, vitamin D, vitamin E, your zinc, get as much zinc into you as Quercetin, possible. Quercetin, baby. Knack. Yeah. Get hey, all glutathione, that in there. If you, if you had to take it, if you got the jab, the glutathione, they say, knack enhances the, um, activation of those things from what I've read, but there's tons and tons of great resources like that. And I am absolutely hundred percent certain that people are going to want to follow. I mean, ever there you've dangled a lot of threads for people to pull on. And the fact that you have a podcast called right on point mm-hmm. at this time on this subject, it could not be better named. I think 
unless there's something you want to tell people right now, maybe we should just tell people how to get more out of what you're doing and, and tell us a little bit more about, you know, what's the most important thing to you. right Well, now. if there, if people are interested in the books and I appreciate the people's interest, uh, they can go to the vaccinecourt.com and get the books. And um, I will actually sign them for people. And when you're doing the checkout on the website, there's actually a little spot there where you can put, who you want it to sign it to. And I'll actually handwrite it, sign it. Who, who might and, want to read that book? People who are, in, who are, have perhaps somebody who's injured by it or understand how it works or forward looking as to what's to come and really get right. a, a grip on, you know, on the legal remedies. 15 years ago, there was, you know, people were asked, do you know someone with autism? And then 10 years ago, everybody, a lot of people raised their hand and said, well, I've got a family member, you know, with autism. Five years ago, people asked, were asked, do you know someone who's vaccine injured? Nowadays, people understand that there's um, vaccine injury left and right, and they might not know it. This is a process. It's not an anti-vaccine book nor a pro-vaccine book. It's a critical review of our legal process, our federal government. And I go to great lengths to outline all the different areas um, of the program, the different types of vaccines and different types of injuries, and then they can draw their own conclusions. Um, my my external family, my brother, sister, and, and my mother actually hate the book, but that's that's okay. Um, oh, uh, we, this, the, the, this your civil war is going to turn brother against brother, just like the civil the. It's going to yeah, yeah it, it it'll or get between there. the states. Um, but. You know, I have concerns about my nieces and my nephews that have gotten the vaccines and they're in their teens right now. So but people can get that book or you can go to rightonpoint.online and sign up for the podcast. It's free. And then I I release once a week. I put out uh, a version and I just put out Dr. James Lyons Weiler and talking about his IPAC Institute and a whole bunch of other scientific stuff. Next week is uh, Jeffrey Jackson, who's the investigative reporter for the High Wire, Dell Big Trees, the oh. High Wire. Jeffrey and I have been friends for a long time. And, yeah, those are the big uh, guns. And Jeffrey's uh, coming on the program. But then, um, and then uh, I also put out Leah Wilson, who is Stand for uh, Freedom, Stand for Your Health Freedom, executive oh, yeah. director. So she's been out there and then, but I, I dig into other areas. Uh, Gerald Posner, he's been a guest yeah, of mine a few times. Right? Um, yeah, he Law did the talking guy. Uh, well, <laughs> no, Gerald's got that book, uh, Pharma, The Greed Lies uh, uh, of uh, the Pharmaceutical Industry. And Charlotte Bismuth has uh, become kind of an interesting guest of mine. She's really big on the opioid issue with the Sackler family and Purdue Pharmaceuticals. She's covered that left and right. And she's got a book out called Bad Medicine. And, and you have podcasts with her because I'm very interested in that yeah, story. I did that one. I did that back in February and I'm following up with her next month because with the bankruptcy Sackler family and the Purdue, you know, coming to an end here, uh, we're going to come up and do an update on that. What's her I, name again? I'm going to put Charlotte, this in the show notes. Charlotte Bismuth, B-I-S-M-U-T-H. She's a former uh, assistant uh, New York City district attorney who brought a successful case, the first successful case against a medical doctor for writing opioid prescriptions for cash. 
and prosecuted him, put him into jail, and he died in jail. Um, but uh, it's an amazing what she did for four years. It's a story about four years of her life, what she did there. Truly amazing. Um, so I get into all different topics. Um, you know, it, it's kind of fun. I I try to stay more on the legal issues. I don't want to get deep into the science because there's a lot of other people that do that well. I really think that the only chance that we have to hold the line is to mm -hmm. keep the process, um, put keep the integrity in the process yeah. and also to exercise it. If you don't use it, you lose it. Like if right. you if you don't believe that there is a value and and you can get a good judge once in a while. Like, sure, these circuit guys are pure politicians, but you can get a good uh, judge once in a while. And I firmly believe this is our, our last chance. Brad and I do every week an update with Garland Favrito in Georgia, who's fighting for election integrity there. Right. We didn't vote for Trump. We just do. We, the process is important. You absolutely have to maintain integrity in the process. And if you let it go, it won't be there anymore. And and shining the light on it may keep some of these judges in line also. So right. I'm definitely going to put the links. Um, Brad and I will put the links of um, your work, your books, mm -hmm. and particularly that podcast in the show notes. But keep going. Okay. So that's what my world is. Plus also just taking care of my son, Nick. Um, and he's a handful. He's going to be 24 next month, but um, you know. Uh, it's a lifelong job. And then you have to worry about who's going to take care of him when somebody has got to take care of you. Somebody's going to have to take care of all of you. That's how I feel with my son who has Down syndrome. I'm like, we're all good for now, but we're like all, all of us are going to end up in the old age home at the same yeah. time because these kids just can't take care of themselves. Well, what's kind of kind of an interesting, funny moment is, is that uh, immediately before this program today, I was out with my son, Nick, where he loves driving around in the community driving through the neighborhoods. So we go out for about an hour. We drive around every day. I'll go and pick up some French fries for him. And he sits in the back seat, <laughs> eats fries and looks around at the neighborhoods. He doesn't like getting on the highways. He likes to be in the neighborhood streets. And we just drive around and I'm just looking around, looking for landscaping ideas or just looking for what's new, you know, and I think I've hit every street, um, every street, an avenue and road in uh, the Twin Cities now. Um, but we just drive around for about an hour. And then when we come home, he generally will sit in his chair for a few minutes. And then that's, I'm going to go up and take a nap for a few minutes. And then that's when I scampered down here. Okay, now we're ready for the program. But that's our routine uh, on a daily basis. And then, you know, um, but he, I have a person who takes care of him during the day for eight hours a day. But then after that, we have to provide care. And then his brother is a senior in college and he'll be home this Friday and then he'll help all on the weekend. But that's how it works. Yeah, I know it. It's very difficult. And I, for, for me, I have, this kid is just born this way. My son has these genetics, but I, um, for some reason I was looking into the thalidomide um, tragedy and I realized that like these, these are total and like the miscarriages and everything. These are totally normal people who I don't think you're not even supposed to use that were typical people, healthy people who because of an action that we don't even think about because we trust the system are severely injured and and 
And it just takes a, it changes the lives and really robs somebody of what their um, the potential that that was meant for them. My son, he is who he was always mm-hmm. meant to be. But I, I just I find something really tragic about changing the course of of somebody who maybe was meant to walk a different path. But we walked the well, path. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, the th- uh the FDA was born out of that one tragedy you just mentioned. That's I wondered how, if they exploited that. That's how the, uh, well, Dr. Fran, I think it's Francis Collins is her name. Oh, yeah. She's the one that prevented, I think it's Colin. She's the one that prevented from uh, that from coming into the United States because it was, it was really big over in Europe. And that's how the FDA was born. But people today are looking at, you know, the COVID vaccine. They're saying, oh, it's FDA approved. Well, FDA approved Vioxx that killed tens of thousands of people. Um, You know, they they prevented the truth about folic acid from coming out. And and people got spina bifida. Children were born with that, which never would have had to happen if they didn't actively go to court to stop that information from coming out. That's criminal. If people would understand that the FDA doesn't have anything to do with the uh, vaccines as far as development, they don't oversee anything. All they do is they look at the application and the data that's submitted to them from the manufacturer. Yeah, they do and nothing. They, and, yeah. and they do nothing. And then, then they make a decision. But that's where Merck got caught on Gardasil showing, you know, the, uh, the placebo trials. There was none. But also where they found out that, uh, you know, later that girls who were taking certain types of antidepressant medicines or certain types of acne medicines should not take the Gardasil. But that was only afterwards. Oh, um, so we they trust. They trust the manufacturer to submit things and be open and honest about it. And it's actually never the case. Pfizer is the worst felon in the world. How many have billions of dollars that they've had to pay out? in fines for lying to the FDA about previous products. And yet we're trusting them for this. You got to be kidding me. It sounds like the FDA operates on plausible deniability is what it sounds like. Yeah, you're correct. That's a, that's a good way of putting it there. I have a couple of questions. I don't know if they would be quick. I don't know if you've even um, heard of any of these, but if I'm just curious if you've heard of people having certain types of reactions, maybe not just to the COVID vaccine, but to any vaccine really. Pulmonary fibrosis, COVID specifically, have you heard of any pulmonary fibrosis type reactions to getting yes. a COVID vaccine? Yes. We've seen them yeah. in VARES all the time. Yeah. I, I thought that that was probably the case. I actually just saw a study that came out recently that was done mm-hmm. in Japan that they actually recommended making that a listed potential side effect for certain groups of people, a rare side effect and, and a very uh, life shortening side effect in many cases. I believe it's more the Johnson and Johnson, the J and J vaccine. I didn't see it listed for Moderna or Pfizer. Pfizer is the one the study was done on that I read out of Japan. Yeah. The J and J vaccine is, has created lots of problems and Pfizer might be down the road, but Moderna and Pfizer um, are the same technology and J and J is using the same technology as AstraZeneca, which is over in Europe. And uh, yeah, that's that's I've seen that. Mm-hmm. This might be a uh, a naive question because I don't necessarily I don't understand a lot of the scientific stuff. I do understand some of the medical stuff because I've I've dealt with a little bit of it um, over the past fifteen years. Not me personally, but people that I know. 
what type of role might vaccines have or, or based on or your understanding that like a lifetime of vaccines have on triggering debilitating autoimmune responses in people? Well, that's where most of that's been our argument for a long time is vaccines. The, the doctors think if you don't have a, a, a reaction right there in the office within just minutes or hours, then you don't have a vaccine injury. But most of these, um, especially with Gardasil and flu shots, have taken over as what they call long-term autoimmune disorders. So that's what it's created those. You have Guillain-Barre, okay, which is basically the modern-day polio. Uh, transverse myelitis. Now, that one's a nasty one because the next stepping stone is multiple sclerosis. Um, and you have people with sitting in wheelchairs and it's very painful. Inflammation of the brainstem and the spinal cords. Yeah. That's what have that's you heard all about. Perineoplastic cerebral degeneration. What? <laughs> the shrinking brain. P- Is that PCG shrinking brain? Shrink, the shrinking brain. Perineoplastic uh, cerebral degeneration. You mentioned multiple sclerosis. This is like multiple sclerosis on steroids, where essentially it's an autoimmune response where you're, brain your your body attacks a tiny cancer in, in your own body and then it eats all the Przinsky cells in your brain and it takes away your ability to control your limbs you can still feel pain but you are essentially a quadriplegic and you have spasms and your body tenses up like a board and stuff it's a rare disease and it's one of those diseases where it's like the doctors are like well we don't know anything about it and it's not part of our consensus, so there's nothing we can do. Well, why don't you right. try this? Well, there's nothing we can do. There, there is something people can do, but I was just curious if you've ever heard of that. I haven't heard of that anything. one, but I, if it's an autoimmune disorder, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it from yeah. ever happening because that's – see, that's where – when you develop a vaccine, it's five, seven to eight years. There's the normal span through clinical trials because they want to tease out Generally, they can tease out fertility issues and they can tease out what they call autoimmune disorders within five to seven years. And they can examine if something develops. Now, if something takes longer than that, well, that's going to be very difficult to track and and determine. Well, with COVID, you know, we're what, uh, nine months? You know, we've compressed everything into nine months. I don't. I'm scared three and four years from now, and I'm really concerned about my niece's nephew regarding fertility. And my and my other son, Austin, he absolutely will refuse to take it. And he's a senior in college. And I said, hey, you know, this hasn't been tested at all for fertility. But then again, we got autoimmune disorders that might pop up a year from now. We might be this nation might be seeing a huge chronic illness increase in arthritis, transverse myelitis, anything. And the potential for diseases that doctors don't know about that are more rare diseases since it's new could potentially arise. And then that would put a bunch of people in a situation where they've got this rare disease that a lot of people haven't heard of. And none of the doctors can do anything because it's not already written in their books about how to treat it. So it could put people in a really bad position. Well, I think you're, you're on to something there, Brad. And um, um, one thing I'll, I'll, I'll leave you guys with this. And um, 
time and my son Nick's you know, getting to the point where I might have to go get him here. But um, when I was researching my book, and Monica, do you remember the swine flu fiasco of 1976? Were you a little, you were probably just born. I, I'm not quite, but I do. I am familiar with it because I watched okay. the 60 Minutes expose of okay. it more recently. Well, uh, I'm a little bit older than you. I was actually a teenager at that time. And I didn't know anything about it, but I was researching and I found out and I looked at and I wanted to find out stuff about that. So what I did is I contacted some of the families. So I was writing this book. First book came out in 2014. I was doing most of the research in 2012 and early part of 2013. And I found some families, the actual members of the family that got the vaccine have passed away uh, because it was, it was given to adults and generally older adults took the vaccine, not the younger adults. So basically adults above the age of 30, 35 took it. So you're, you know, you're talking 40 some years later, a lot of them passed away. So I was able to track down 15 families and we were talking about this and they mentioned that these family members all passed away several years later of very rare cancers that normally you wouldn't see. Now, my group of 15 is not big enough to determine or to create a hypothesis and, and support it. But you I pick thought 15 random families and compare. Yeah, but. Yeah, but we don't know. I didn't get into I don't have an IRB approval to go in and actually study them and and, and see where they smokers or pops up in the in the group that you identify. That is kind of the opposite of when, you know, you take a random sample looking for something rare. Right. You think you have a random sample and something rare popped up, then, you know. Right. So I could have been accused of selection bias and all that other stuff because I was looking at. But you weren't selecting for cancer. No. So that's why it's weird. It was it's correlated. It looks like. But anyway, yes. Yeah. So so and oh, it, that's it had some very, very rare cancers. Now, Generally, wait, I just have to clarify. Were the families that you found, were they people who were injured by the swine flu vaccine no. or just who had taken it? No, they're family. Oh, yeah. so there yeah, was no, no they, early warning sign, really. It was like uh, it was either oh. the sons and daughters of a yeah, parent who passed right. away. I understand. Yeah, I understand. And they died generally eight to 10 to 12 years later. Now, a lot of them developed Guillain-Barre to begin with. Yeah. But Guillain-Barre could be a stepping stone into what Brad was talking about. Yeah. And other cancers and, and, and stuff like this. I just didn't have the wherewithal, the resources to find, you know, 400 families or 500 families and then do a study on that. It just, at the time I was just trying to write the book, but that was the preview of how our nation handled vaccine injury that led to the act in 1986. Yeah. And, and one thing that bothers me is that they now, when they give, so the original polio vaccine supposedly gave people polio. And then even in India, when Gates brought the polio vaccine to India, it gave people polio and, and my theory is it's not polio at all. It's just myelitis. It's Guillain-Barre, which looks very much like polio. And it just makes it seem like 
um, oh, it was a bad batch of vaccine when in fact it's a pretty predictable side effect from vaccines. Right. So, so wow. But then, so there's yeah. there's a lot of things we don't know. And we and and unfortunately, with COVID, the vaccines um, and maybe even remdesivir and a few other remdesivir really makes me worry because yeah. first it was the ventilators that you go to the hospital and all of a sudden you're on a ventilator and, and you get pneumonia from the ventilator or whatever. <laughs> now you go in and people go into the hospital and then they crash and it's like yep. they, they get worse. And lo and behold, I've seen personally people who the first thing that the hospital did was give them remdesivir. Yeah. And it should never, we should never do it. Um, so. Oh man. We're, we're on to so something. Much more to listen to. So I'm, so we're going to put that stuff in the show notes and I am, I am the next podcast I listen to is going to be a right on point podcast for sure. I got to hear that chick. So well, it'll be out. It'll be out uh, on Monday. All right. Wow. Thank you so much. Thanks for going over. I know what it's like. You've got a limited amount of time. and You got a kid like that. I'm super, super sorry to go over. But, you know, we just wanted to pick your brain. Well, Brad, thank you very much for being the host or the engineer. I love your background. I love the background. Little Star Trek action. (laughs) Nobody's going to see that. I didn't put makeup on, so no video. And then, Monica, thank you very much for the opportunity. (laughs) Yes, such a pleasure. Thanks a million, Wayne. We'll hopefully talk to you again. Great info. Be good. Be good, everybody. See y'all later.